Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Florian Ludwig from Tua Capital. In this episode, Giovanni and Florian discuss how venture capital works in Benelux, going from medtech entrepreneur to a VC, new hubs that are forming in medtech in Europe, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Florian Ludwig. Thank you very much for your time in joining us here. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is I wanted to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs, bankers, investors like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from the information, from the insights, and give this to generations of professional entrepreneurs and investors to come. And so what I imagine the audience here is a mixture of experts and novices, those who have been there and done that before, and those doing this for the very first time. And so what I wanted to do is extract your stories and your insights and your advice so that we can share with what I imagine is the first time founder or CEO and has no clue of what lies ahead on the journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And the reason why you and I are here today, not only we've known each other for years and we have a great relationship, so thank you again for your time on this, um, but I would love to get the story of what is it like to leave industry, the med tech industry, and become a VC, venture capitalist. So we'll get that. In addition to that point, it's the Tuya Capital. We'll learn about Tuya from mm -hmm. you. Um, but also the, the geographical focus of the fund and more about how that style of VC fund exists. So that, that's the two points. But before we get into all of that, I have a few questions that I wanted to ask you so that we can get some engagement going and those who are listening right now can have a little fun learning about who you are and how you think. So the first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or am I missing anything? So uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Giovanni. It's a pleasure being here. And um, I um, would wholeheartedly agree that people and money are two of the key ingredients and necessary ingredients to make a medically device company successful. Um, so yes, 
um, of course, um, the product concept also has to be on target and it has to be something that um, really furthers medicine and, and um, helps patients and, and physicians to treat disease or prevent disease better. But at the end of the day, it's people that make it happen, people that develop that technology, people um, that define the strategy. And at the end of the day, they can't do it without capital. Um, so putting those two ingredients together um, usually um, is, uh, is the lifeblood and, and the very basis and foundation um, of a successful medtech startup. Couldn't agree more. Number two is, if you knew what you know now about being a medtech entrepreneur, in addition to an investor, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently? Yeah, no, I, looking back, I think there's very few things I would change. It's a, it's a very rewarding industry to be in. Um, the impact um, that new developments and innovations can have on the lives of patients around the world is phenomenal. Um, even if, uh, you know, I think back on my, my own short span in the medical device industry, the developments that have been realized by medical technology um, are um, incredible. And diseases that um, were more or less untreatable um, or only with grave difficulties are now uh, uh, in you know, a minimally invasive procedure um, where the patient leaves the hospital the next day or sometimes even the same day, um, uh, treated for diseases that previously um, were a, a lifetime of, of suffering and disability. So the last one before we can elaborate on your background and who you are, which will give some context to that. What does Tuya Capital mean? What is Tuya? Yeah, so Tuya actually um, is a, a tree. It's, it's uh, translated the, the tree of life that, believes, uh, that belongs to the um, uh, Cypress family. Um, and so uh, it signifies um, life, but also it signifies growth. And obviously that's something as venture capitalists uh, we're very interested in is to help companies grow and ultimately make them successful. And without further ado, Florian, here we are. Who are you? Where'd you come from? And how did you end up becoming investment manager of Tuya Capital? That's a, that's a slightly longer story, but in a, in a somewhat abbreviated fashion. So um, I started, uh, I have a science degree, so I have a, a physics degree, but um, during my studies already, I became very fascinated and interested with a new emerging field called biophysics. And at the time, it was really a melting pot of um, biology, chemistry, physics, uh, and, and of course the medical aspect. Um, and uh, one of the other things that always fascinated me was interfaces or surfaces. So at surfaces, a lot of things happen and, and that's the same thing for interdisciplinary surfaces. So out of this emerged um, not, not only technologies, but a whole um, field of looking at um, biology, disease biology, pathology in, uh, in, a, in a new light. Um, and that fascination never left me. So I stepped out of um, school into uh, a first position with a startup um, 
in uh, technology development, product development, as is often the case when you have a scientific technical background. Uh, but very early on, um, I came in contact with um, the clinical aspect of things by supporting uh, clinical studies that, that the company I was working for um, had ongoing. Um, and saw very early on that um, feedback, that interaction between um, the technology and what it does in the clinic and how that feeds um, into each other. Um, I then spent um, time in a number of startups and some of the larger corporates, uh, some, some of which are, uh, have now been acquired and um, are part of, of uh, even larger corporates um, and um, spent time in a number of roles and uh, in some ways kind of was swept downstream a little bit based on this uh, initial experience starting out in the technology development but then uh, holding positions in uh, clinical program uh, management and ultimately um, also some touched on market development uh, and that gave me a very comprehensive and a very round view on what it takes to not only develop a medical device but then also keep it at the forefront of innovation and, and keep it um, competitive. And the second part of that is now let's talk about Tuya Capital. What is Tuya Capital? Oh, and before I forget, just to give some context to those who are listening, originally from Germany, now living in the Netherlands, correct? That is correct. Okay, and then you had a, a stint there, whether short or long over in California, so quite a global perspective. Yeah, so I, I spent six years in Silicon Valley, um, and uh, that's obviously a hotbed of uh, medical device innovation. So uh, lots to learn, um, incredible people, um, incredible uh, network that, um, that I maintain uh, to this date from this time, and, um, and just a, a place where there's a lot of ingredients to make things happen, um, including the people and the money, but also including research organizations, including um, a, just a, a general vibe in that arena um, that makes things um, go and a can-do attitude um, that, uh, that is very conducive to innovation. And so part two is this, now we know who you are. Tell us about Tuya Capital. What do you guys focus in? Funds, size of funds, what type of startups do you invest in? Stages, ticket sizes, anything that you can share to give context of the background of Tuya Capital. Yeah, so in uh, two th 2016, um, I, um, uh, as uh, Giovanni is alluding to, I went from the medtech industry proper into uh, an investor role um, with Tuya Capital. And um, so Tuya Capital is a venture capital firm uh, based out of the Netherlands, um, founded in um, 2005. Um, and um, by uh, um, Harald van Balingen. Um, Tuya Capital is, is an investor that is um, focused on early investments in the healthcare arena. Um, we're quite agnostic when it comes to indication uh, and modality. Um, what we do want to see is we want to see a clearly defined unmet clinical need um, and of course, we want to be convinced that the product concept addresses that unmet clinical need. Uh, we do a pay, uh, pay a lot of attention to, to the people behind um, the company. Um, uh, but uh, beyond that, um, we 
we often invest early um, and help entrepreneurs work, um, support entrepreneurs through our network, through our experience, through um, our, our knowledge um, to build their dream, um, build their um, company um, into ultimately a successful product that treats patients and helps to um, uh, address uh, unmet clinical needs in the, in the field. Um, so um, based on both our history, but also the fact that we are an early investor and that a lot of times um, startups in that stage do not tick all the boxes and they benefit from um, some more guidance than say mature management teams. We also like to have the ability to um, have a cup of coffee. So hopefully this will be possible post COVID again uh, more frequently with these entrepreneurs. And therefore we've made a conscious choice to limit ourselves to geographically to be able to have short lines of communication and the ability to sit with people uh, on short notice uh, if and when it's needed. So for a startup who could get funded by Tuya Capital, for example, has there already been money invested into them or sometimes are you the first money into the company or how much traction should they have? And also, I, I just to pop that bubble, you've invested in some pretty heavy technology, right? So for example, Salvia. We do. So um, we, and we invest not only in med tech, uh, we also do invest in uh, therapeutics, so biotech and pharma. And um, we also invest in digital health um, as part of the, the med tech um, arm of the practice. Um, we don't have um, a, a hard um, investment criterion with respect to um, the series or um, how much money has gone into the company since this is sometimes also a little bit semantics. Um, but we have uh, in the past, uh, it, or we, we, we frequently actually have invested in companies where we were um, the founding investor. So the first um, venture capital investor into the company. Um, sometimes those are university spinouts um, that um, transition out of the academia into a startup company. And sometimes like in the, in the case of Salvia, um, these are serial entrepreneurs um, that have been successful and want to do it all over again. Um, and um, yeah, we, we, we uh, um, very much, um, we see a lot of opportunity in that phase because usually growth during this initial phase is fulminant. And that also means that there's a lot of value to be gained and had. So are you jumping into the seed round or the series A? So it, whether it's whether you call it seed or whether you call it series A is often in the eye of the beholder. Um, so we, we do both. But again, the nomenclature is a little less important to us than what's behind um, the team, what's behind the company and um, the team we uh, work with. And even on the medical device side, going back to Selvia Bioelectronics, right? So it, you invest in class one, class two, class three med tech. So you, you don't care, not shouldn't say don't care, but um, will even take on some of the more riskier style products in addition to the, the more class two simpler ones. Yeah, no, so obviously we pay attention to capital needs and, and the complexity of, of the technology. 
but we're not afraid of um, taking on the hardcore medtech um, based on our experience and also based on our track record in, it, in that arena. So I want to switch gears and we're going to come back and flush more out on Tuya Capital and the investment strategy. And, and once again, to wrap the topic around that, we're going to look at a geographically focused VC pros, cons, and how they think. Uh, but before we get into that, I think it's a fascinating story. You were in the industry from R&D to being in clinical research. You spent time in Silicon Valley. It, it almost feels like this was preparing you to be a more thorough med tech investor. You understand how to build things. You understand how to clinically test things. And you spent six years in quite a very entrepreneurial ecosystem before going back to Europe. And, and even in Europe, the part that you're in Europe right now is, is incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, so what is it like to go from the med tech industry to becoming a first time VC? What were some of the growing pains and the learning lessons? So, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I, I do think having that operational experience is very, very helpful because you do understand some of the soft elements better and you, um, you also, uh, I believe, understand better having not only had a look under the hood, but having lived inside the hood, uh, what can sometimes trip companies up and, and some of the, um, the things that um, can, can uh, um, yeah, trip uh, developments uh, and delay them, um, but uh, there, there's obviously a you know a stark learning curve associated with stepping from that operational role uh, or an operational role into the investor um, uh, world. So, um, what is a constant is that ultimately it's still about exactly the same thing. It's about bringing innovation to patients bringing meaningful product improvements or completely disruptive new products to patients and physicians. So that focus is um, pretty much the same between um, being on the operational side on the investor side. But at the same, of course, um, you play a different role on the investor side. Um, so that definitely took me some time to um, transition from the mindset of um, how do I tackle this problem to is this even worthwhile a problem worthwhile tackling and is this ultimately a you know a good investment um, and the other thing um, that that of course you know you know not necessarily prepared for coming out of the operational world is um, a lot of the mechanics, the deal mechanics, um, the different possible structures. Um, and I think I'm still learning um, uh, every day. Um, there's no end to um, creativity on that side, which is, um, which is really refreshing to see because there's um, usually always um, a solution that can be found to make things go forward. So this is really the, the reason why um, um, why an investment is, uh, is not feasible. But it is a learning curve. Um, and, and it is also, uh, you know, an, an evolution or adaption and mindset. Were there times where as a new VC that you had learned what happens on the other side, being a VC, it was kind of that aha moment 
reflecting back to when you were in the industry, like, oh, that's how that works. Or, oh, that's why the companies were being pressured or driving funding or whatever it may be. Was there, was there some aha moments now that you got to see on the other side of the curtain? Um, they definitely were. And um, you, there's, there's definitely um, some understanding that comes up, uh, comes with that um, um, regarding some of the pressures that um, uh, investors are exposed to and how that translates then into pressures on startups. Um, but it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't overly drastic in the sense that, you know, ultimately on the operational side, you feel those pressures. Um, also, you share some of them. Um, so they were not completely um, unex or, uh, unexpected. And I get asked regularly when I talk with industry professionals within the medtech industry, um, asking, you know, I'm thinking about growing my career. Do I take the next step to this position in my clinical research or my R&D or my manufacturing, whatever it may be? Um, or I, I would like to think about going into venture. And, and I get asked that fairly regularly. Having done that, meaning you, for those listening, talk about some of the pros and cons. I mean. Do you miss industry? Do you like being a VC better? And whatever your personal emotions are, talk about some of the pros and cons of being prepared to do that. For all those out there who are wondering, I've been in the mentech industry, I've built a good career, I've been in here for 10, 20 years, whatever it may be, would love to see what happens on the other side of the curtain. And if someone could give me a chance to become a VC, I'd certainly like to take it on. Having done that from you, Florian, talk to those people who are listening about that experience and what are they giving up versus what are they learning? Yeah, so there, there's some incredibly rewarding uh, moments on both sides of the equation. So I don't think there's a right or wrong. Uh, I think you have to ultimately figure out um, what fits best with you. Um, and that's not a static answer. That uh, can be an answer that changes um, like, like it has been the case with me. Um, the, um, I think the rewarding side on the, or the, some of the rewarding elements on the investing side are that um, it's um, amazing to see what, how much innovation, creativity, um, and drive there is on the entrepreneurial side. And um, when you're on the operational side, you have to be focused on, um, what you do at that moment. Um, and that doesn't allow you to have this broad overview um, as much as you do get um, on, the, on the investment side. Um, so th that's really rewarding. It's fascinating. Um, there's, of course, especially in the early stage um, part, there is also a dialogue with entrepreneurs and, and, and sometimes a very um, uh, yeah, inspiring dialogue of um, how to best develop new concepts, how to bring um, them to the patient, how to bring innovation into the clinic. Um, but, and this is maybe, um, you know, the, the reward on the operational side, on the investment side, um, of course, um, as an investor, you one step removed from being in the game. 
Um, so, um, so on the on the uh, startup side, on the entrepreneurial side, um, it is incredibly thrilling uh, from my own experience to be part of a team that makes it happen, to be um, in the in the mix when when things uh, drive forward, um, and and when uh, startups. Um, go through um, some of those difficult moments, um, but also some of those very rewarding moments um, after um, surmounting hurdles. So that, that is something that as an investor is a little bit more, um, uh, for lack of a better word, um, uh, yeah, buffered. Um, so you one step removed from, from, from being right at the center uh, of the action. Sometimes that's also a good thing, just to be fair, because uh, um, the, some of the high frequencies will have passed um, and, and they need to be handled in the team. Um, so uh, I, I think those are maybe the, the key aspects that I would mention. And I feel the same for my side, right? So being a consultant, looking at numerous companies, I've often wondered, what is it like to wave one flag? What is it like to be part of one of these med tech startups that you're operationally focused on taking a product and getting it over the line? And that's what you have to focus on, right? But my my position is I look at multiple med tech startups simultaneously, help build their teams, et cetera. From an investor standpoint, it's fairly similar, right? So you're constantly looking at entrepreneurs, you're constantly growing the startups that you've already invested in. Um, obviously, you're part of a company, Tuya, but you're you're looking at multiple companies at once. Where, like you mentioned, you're not waving that one flag of being operationally focused on one product. You're you're looking at multiple products. So, how do you feel about that? Used to being a part of one med tech company, R and D, clinical research, seeing the product, getting it over the line, um, and now not necessarily doing that, investing and giving advice and growing and working with entrepreneurs, but going from waving that one flag to having to look at many flags. Yeah, so I think that's that's an important aspect. So of course, you're still waving a flag, in this case, the, uh, the, the Tuya flag. So you're part of a team. Um, but in terms of the um, technology focus and the, and, the, and the development focus, that is broader. So you, you are... Um, if, if uh, for people out there that are considering um, that, that transition, um, you have to be conscious that you give up um, depth for breadth. So um, again, I find it extremely rewarding, um, but it is um, um, a different role that you play in making innovation successful. And what opportunities has it given you? I mean, now that you are on the other side of the curtain, all those, once again, listening who would like to venture into VC, um, coming from the industry, what kind of opportunities do you think it, it's opened you up to in terms of how you think, how you look at the business, how you look at the industry, um, being on boards, whatever it may be? What opportunities have given you crossing that river from industry into VC? Um, that's a good question. So. Uh, there is, um, there's obviously a new world that opens up in terms of um, the network, um, 
and um, it is a it provides a different outlook on the same on the same landscape. So it's um, it's a little bit if you you know climb a mountain on the other side of the valley and you look back, it's still the same playing field, but um, you do gain a different um, perspective on it. So, um, at, you know, I guess you hear me hesitating because, uh, again, at the same time, I think it is still the same playing field in the sense that the ultimate goal is to bring meaningful innovation to patients and to physicians. And with that innovation, um, everything, everything else falls into place and um, aligns. So that's, uh, um, yeah, so that focus, I think, is not, doesn't change and it's not any different being on the operation side or, or being on the investor side. And going back to learning about deal making, et cetera, um, having not that insight when you were in industry and then joining VC, just demystify that. Is it, you have to become a math whiz and the best deal maker in the world? And is it more about the numbers and number crunching and figuring out how to actually put these deals together in all these 10,000 opportunities of doing so? Or is it really working with people and figuring it out? And it's not necessarily you having to be a physics major or a mathematician. It's more about people business. Yeah. No, obviously math skills help just to, to outline um, and, and play through different scenarios. But there's no magic formula. It's, it's too complex for that. Um, it's about the, you know, it's about the technology, but it's also about um, it, the people. It's about um, uh, the market landscape, um, which is usually dynamic. So this is not a static landscape. So it's understanding how, how this is likely to evolve. It's understanding where the, where the puck will be, not where the puck is today. Um, so the, you know, the, the spreadsheet math, I think, is, is um, almost uh, one of the minor aspects of this. Although this is, of course, at the end of the day, the goal for investors, um, they invest to make money. Um, and um, the venture capitalists have um, investors behind them that um, are also seeking to make money. So it is about the return at, at the end of the day. But um, unless you figured out the pieces of the puzzle of how to get to that return, um, the math behind it becomes, um, it needs to be grounded. Um, and and uh, in, in that sense, it becomes a, um, a minor aspect actually of the investment trajectory and the investment decision. And this next question is, it's a, it's a segue into both topics that I wanted to get with you. So this concept, and I've talked to numerous other investors about how VCs are startups within themselves, right? And not necessarily evergreen or non-for-profits or family offices, but um, the traditional 10-year VC fund or those private VCs, if you will, where they have to return money back to LPs. I mean, they're a startup within themselves because if they start with a fund, 
typically it's the smallest fund that they'll ever have. It's their first fund. And if there's proven success, they'll go out and raise a second fund. And if they do that, then typically it's a little bit bigger. Maybe they are semi-cautious and do the exact same size of fund. And then the third fund will be bigger, et cetera. But there's that step-up period where we've also talked about how MedTech is once again, for the larger, larger ones, they're moving downstream because as they raise larger and larger funds, they have to deploy probably the same amount of checks or companies, but larger style checks, which then are reserved for later stage companies, commercial companies, big clinical trial companies, et cetera. So the, the question for you straddling both topics that we want to get into now is knowing that the VCs are, are, start, are kind of like startups, what is it like to think about having to raise funds for a VC, just like a startup company has to raise funds from someone like you to keep their operations going? That's number one. And then number two, if you can, whatever you can share, the style of investors in Detuya um, that keep that geographic focus, which we'll then move into as our next topic. What is that like? Yeah, so fundraising for fund is it, it's there's a lot of similarities uh, and some differences to raising funds for a startup, uh, but ultimately it's still convincing investors that you have a great opportunity to 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 offer. Um, but it's not only about um, so you're right. Uh, funds are are also organizations that that grow and sometimes very much look like a startup. Um, and so it's not only the the growth of the fund, um, just like in a startup. It's not only about the fact that you, your Series B is likely bigger than your Series A. It's about the growth of the organization. Um, it's about structure in the organization. Uh, and it's about transitioning from um, a startup that likely started out with a group of very passionate entrepreneurs to an organization um, that um, is based more on processes and on, on, on a, on a well-defined structure than any single person. It will still be very much based on people and they will be very important. Um, but over time, uh, I think the dependence on any one single, um, individual, um, is transitioned to, to a, to a team and, uh, an organization. So that's very similar. And you also, of course, with that, go from wearing multiple hats to um, becoming a little bit more focused on a specific function in an organization. And once again, for those listening, do you typically, as an early venture capitalist or one who's joined within the first five years, 10 years, whatever it may be, um, do are partners the ones that are reserved for fundraising only, or does the whole company have to be part of the pitch? How does that work? Yeah, I, I have a very, uh, um, or I have a very specific experience in that sense. So I do not know how that exactly is handled at other funds. Um, uh, at, at, at Tuya, we are quite um, team oriented in that setting, although, um, of course, managing partners um, will take a, a bigger share of that and, and also be sort of the, the, the anchor and the foundation and the um, other team members um, become 
um, yeah, play different roles in this fundraising aspect. And now moving into about Tuya, right? So tell us about who invests in Tuya, and if you can't name names, that's fine. If you can, that would be great. But um, that geographic focus, I mean, is it is it the typical sovereign funds that are investing? Is it is it pension funds? Is it local universities? How, how does that work? And is that part of the influence of that geographic focus or is it based on technology? Yeah, so, um, you know, like many funds, we, we really don't comment on our LP base, but it is a, it's a mixed LP base. Um, and um, we are very fortunate to have some, some great LPs in our fund um, that are uh, just as interested in uh, making healthcare better and better uh, as we are. And does that help play into the geographic focus? And, and I've been saying that on the geographic focus part, just to demystify that for those audiences or the audience, um, you guys focus in the Benelux region, right? So we, we um, focus on the Benelux uh, region as well as Germany. As well as Germany, okay. And for those who may not know, Benelux is Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. Right, and, and in addition to Germany now. Um, so is there, is there a reason why that focus is? Is it, is it so robust and rich uh, with technology that you don't have to look outside? Is it um, because early stage investors typically wanna stay somewhat close to their capital and have a hands-on influence? Tell us about that. Yeah, it's a combination actually of both. So uh, as mentioned earlier, as early stage investors, we do want to be able to have frequent and also personal interaction with entrepreneurs and, and young uh, startup management teams. Um, and at the same time, um, both uh, Netherlands and Belgium, as well as Germany, have a phenomenal entrepreneurial culture. Um, and um, Europe has come actually a long way uh, since I was in Silicon Valley in terms of um, a supportive ecosystem uh, with respect to the access to um, venture capital firms like Tuya, uh, but also access to non-dilutive funding, um, access to um, specific grants instruments that are designed to um, get startups through difficult periods and to accelerate startups. And some of them are incredibly well designed. Um, so there is a, a landscape that's not only evolving, but it's also maturing and provides a really um, strong background for entrepreneurs and startups to be successful. Um, so there's different local flavors between say the Netherlands, between Belgium and between Germany. Uh, but all of them offer opportunities for startups um, to accelerate and to bring in uh, additional non-dilutive capital to fund their development activities. And for those listening who may not know about that specific region of the world, when we have the Benelux region in addition to Germany, and I'm not limiting to you whatever you can share, but are there tech hubs within that area, cities or regions? Like for example, we know in the United States within MedTech, and there are certainly micro hubs that are popping up left and right. So hopefully not offending anybody who's listening in, but the, the traditional ones are Boston, Minneapolis, 
San Francisco or the Bay Area, for sure. Those are the three top ones. Southern California is coming up incredibly strong and usually thrown into there as the fourth, which just basically encompasses the whole state of California at this point. Um, and we have micro ones, right? Like Texas and Chicago and Florida's even up and coming in Seattle. So that, that's just to give some context in that region that you guys focus in that for those listening again, to give some geographical flavor, any tech hubs that are coming out of that region? That's a little bit, uh, you know, like, like uh, you're mentioning those hubs in the US, there's probably a few more you can mention. Um, so um, there are some some traditional hubs um, in 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 uh, the geography we serve, um, but um, there are uh, quite a few additional hubs that are emerging. So in you know in the Netherlands, um, you know obviously Philips uh, spawned a number of spin-offs and entrepreneurs in the Eindhoven region. Um, this is on the Metech side, but um, if you look further, um, Utrecht um, uh, spawned some great inventions for cardiac surgery. Um, and then if you, um, you know, go into Germany, uh, you'll find that some of the former, you know, clock working uh, areas where people were used to, to work very precisely and, and with a high degree of quality in, in micro machining actually some of that skill set also transitioned into um metic hubs or at least regions that were metic affine uh, technical university of Aachen is a is a great example of a technical university populating um, and seeding metic innovation um, but then you also have um, new hubs that are forming uh, for example, in Nijmegen in the Netherlands or in, uh, in, in Liège uh, in Belgium. Uh, and I probably also forgot a few, so I, I extend the apology as well. So that's just the medtech side. And I know this is a medtech talk, but since we're also fund that cuts across to, um, you know, biotech and, and, um, and pharma. So uh, I'd be amiss not to mention uh, some of the in incredibly um, proliferative and incredibly scientific hubs around Leiden, around uh, Utrecht, uh, where TUIA is based. Um, so some of the, the companies that um, um, may be known to some of these uh, people listening is our, a company called Agenix, which were, TUIA incidentally was actually the uh, inaugural in, uh, venture capital investor. Uh, which is now listed on, on, on NASDAQ and um, uh, still, still growing, still um, increasing in value. Um, Galapagos is another um, uh, big brand name in the biotech world um, that, that grew out uh, and was started from scratch um, uh, by entrepreneurs um, out of the Netherlands and, and Belgium and um, was uh, is not also a great success. And to give insight, because the only one that we haven't mentioned yet, um, anything happening in Luxembourg or not really? No, so Luxembourg is, uh, is um, in terms of activities, I, I don't want to say there's nothing happening, but uh, it, it, it is not um, a, a big focus. And then maybe simply by sheer numbers, it's a small country. So uh, 
um, mostly the deal flow we see is comes mostly out of um, Netherlands, uh, Belgium, and Germany. And coming from that medtech industry background that you have to being a VC, which is now focused in medtech and life sciences, we, we talked about the learning curve of objectively you becoming a VC, um, but having that medtech background, certainly adding that industry value that you can bring to the table, high level, what are the differences that you're seeing as a VC between medtech and biotech or biopharma? What are some of, just for the audience to listen who may not know about that, what are some of the major differences of investing in those two different industries? Yeah, so I apologize ahead of time to my biotech uh, colleagues if I say anything stupid, but what I see is simply um, a different um, uh, development um, pathway in an in, in exit landscape in the sense that um, for medical devices, um, especially medical device innovation, um, by almost without exception, that also means that an innovative medical device introduces a change in uh, the way patients are um, diagnosed or treated. Um, so it requires the physician to slightly adapt things, sometimes drastically so, um, but it, it provides usually a new element in the um, patient flow. Um, and in, for the more hardcore medical devices, it provides a, a new procedure. Um, and, and that, um, from, from an exit perspective, often results in um, uh, strategic parties that, that acquire medtech startups to wait a little longer to see how um, such a new technology and an innovative technology is adopted by physician operators or physician users. Um, in the biotech world, it's much more about the biology and the science of um, a new um, active ingredient or a new, new uh, active pharmaceutical um, molecule to address the underlying um, biology, to address the underlying um, disease. Um, but once that is, has, is proven successful, the um, market adoption goes much faster because it doesn't require a change in the physician behavior. It, it, it requires obviously also um, some scientific communication and, and um, creating awareness, but it, it um, does not result in a physician having to learn a new procedure. And that in turn results in um, a, an exit landscape that sees um, in the right arenas, uh, potentially earlier exits um, for startup companies. So the investment thesis uh, um, is slightly different. And this idea of syndicating or syndication amongst VCs, was that something also new and aha for you where those out there who are entrepreneurs trying to find venture capitalists to invest in them, once they find one that'll invest a certain amount, they think that they have to go find the others or the old, go find the others or go find the next one. What role do, does a VC who's interested in investing in the startup play in actually syndicating the rest of the round? How does that work? 
Yeah. Um, so ultimately, each investor and each venture capital firm make up their own mind. So they make independent decisions. Um, but of course, it is helpful for um, entrepreneurs if the introduction comes through um, a fellow venture capital firm, uh, since the assumption is that somebody else has already um, looked into, looked under the hood, looked a little deeper, and obviously convinced themselves that this is something worthwhile doing. Um, so it um, it doesn't impact the ultimate decision, but what it does is it um, helps to gain priority. And um, we do this, of course, also conversely, um, if we're if we're convinced. Um, uh, of a, of a startup um, that we provide introductions to um, fellow investors that we, we think might have an interest in investing in this company as well. And on the, the idea of that syndication, right? It's about trust. It's about how personal money can be. Um, do you feel that when you work with the entrepreneurs and also even syndicating with other investors? I mean, is, is money such a personal game that sometimes it, it overrides the mechanics or the numbers and a lot of trust is involved. For example, you know, if, if your best friend tells you this is the hottest stock in the world and you know, you've known that friend all your life, you used to ride bikes together when you were little boys and all of a sudden you're in your thirties, forties, fifties, whatever it may be. And he goes, Florian, you got to invest in this stock. It, I know it's going to go up. It's going to be great. And you say, that sounds great. I'll, here's, 50 or here's a thousand or whatever it may be. And you blindly follow that person because there's that trust in that person because why else would they bring you this? Is, does it work like that? Is it, is it that trust-based in the venture world or is it always mechanically involved with finances? There's obviously trust involved, but I think it takes a lot to rise to that stature that um, people will, will blindly follow someone. So, um, each, um, and, and there's a couple of things that play into this. Each venture capital firm has their own um, flavor or their own sweet spot, if you so want. Um, and um, it has to be um, a fit also with the DNA of that, of that fund. Um, and, and again, uh, investors will, there's just too much money involved to follow somebody else blindly. There's, uh, so investors make, uh, up their own mind. Keep in mind that um, you know venture capitalists um, typically invest in less than one percent of their deal flow, so it is a very selective process. Um, but there's, of course, there's a there's a picture that emerges, um, and that picture emerges from talking with fellow investors, but it also emerges from talking with key opinion leaders, with experts in the field. Um, with, um, you know, depending on what the proposition is with regulatory experts to understand the pathway um, and with reimbursement uh, experts to understand how this, you know, what it will take to, um, for the market to see this as um, something that is worth paying for. So um, there is, there's of course an element um, if, if reputable um, fellow investors um, are looking um, and positively looking at a potential opportunity, um, then this, this will also form part of that um, picture. It will be a piece of the puzzle.
couple of small questions for you before we segue out here. And once again, thanking you very much for your time, Florian. Um, an early stage VC firm like Tuya, based in the Netherlands, looking at the Benelux in Germany. Do you find all these startups or do they find you? Meaning, is the community that you play in so small that it's impossible to know that you're not one of the select few industry focused investors and everyone goes to Tuya at least to let them know that you they exist? Or how does that work because you're so geographically focused? Does everyone find you or do you find everyone else? It's, it's a mix. So a lot of people do find us. Um, and I want to say that we miss very little deal flow in our target geography. Um, but we are also actively engaged with the community. We are out um, at um, conferences. We participate in venture challenges as, as judges and, and as coaches. So we're very actively um, present. Um, we are talking to and have partnerships with a number of universities. Um, and um, we have partnerships with um, a, a number of um, uh, fellow, you know, fellow in, in, in investors, both on the, um, the, and so we also see deal flow through that. So, it, so in that sense, um, it's uh, it's not, it, um, it, yeah, it's a combination of being active in the community and and passively receiving a lot of um, deal flow that ends up on our desk. And then to summarize that too, it certainly helps the fact that you are so geographically focused that you can have a little bit more control over that reach as well as flow. Because if you looked across the Atlantic or if you were investing in China or Australia, obviously it would be much more challenging. I think that would be a daunting task. Um, <laughs> in that sense, absolutely, that focus helps because um, people get to know you and um, and they find you through, uh, or, and, and new entrants into the community find you through those networks. Final question, Florian, and also you having this experience, um, what makes a good board member for a startup? And if you were a CEO of a startup company, what would you expect out of a board member? Beyond money, obviously. Yeah, so, well, board members don't bring the money. Um, that's that's really the investors. So investors obviously often do take a board seat. But um, what makes a good board member? Um, I, I think that's um, um, th that's a very specific question, also um, with respect to the specific company and the specific board. But I think a couple of elements that I would I would say um, are are important. One is um, that the focus of the board member should be to make the company successful. And in my mind, that also includes keeping the CEO out of trouble in the sense that um, you do um, point out blind spots that get lost in the, especially in young companies and early stage companies in the, in the daily shuffle. Um, make sure that um, there's a, a strategic overview that maintain, uh, you maintain it um, and you serve as a sounding board and also someone who, who challenges management to um, ensure that, that all the options have been considered and the best one is selected. Um, and 
Last but not least, I think is supporting the management through um, your respective experience and network. Very good. Florian, thank you so much for your time. This is MedTech Money, Demystifying Raising Capital. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Giovanni. Pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.